You're listening to Unfiltered. We bring you interviews from around the world to share interesting perspectives and discussions on forced displacement. My name is Rez Gardi from the Centre for Asia-Pacific Refugee Studies based at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Today, I'm very pleased to have our guest, Mr. Abdul Aziz Muhammad. Uh, hi, Abdul, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Hi. Um, and for those of you listening, I'm very excited for this podcast because our guest today is a very special one who has been tirelessly advocating for human rights and refugee rights. He's the laureate for the prestigious Martin Annals Award for Human Rights Defenders. The award is judged by 10 of the world's leading human rights organizations, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the International Service for Human Rights. Um, but before we get to all the amazing work you've done, uh, to get this award, um, I'd like to start from, I guess, the beginning of your journey, um, how you came to flee Sudan and end up in Manus Island. Well, first of all, um, let me say uh, thank you for, for having me. It's such a great I mean, honor and privilege to be uh, part of this um, I mean, podcast. And in regarding to my personal story, I think it's a very long story. I mean, and if you want to speak, I mean, in full details, it will take me roughly about an hour to kind of like make it that up. But I will try to summarize. Um, as a matter of fact, starting with my personal as a Ziz and uh, I mean, as a Sudanese from North Sudan, I mean, born in Darfur, raised in Khartoum, and I spent uh, my childhood um, up to from like age from the first months of my I mean my childhood to like a 18, 18 years old on the way to like 19 years old when I fled the country so getting back to the reason why I fled and how did I end up to Manus um, fleeing Sudan, Sudan was ruled by a dictator, I was born I mean in the middle of uh, a ruling dictator who was under power for like handful of years before even my birth. And what happened was as a as someone who born in Sudan and I had the privilege and the opportunity and I went to schools where um, it's like an English school and I've learned so much and but at the same time as well like I came from a background with a family that we are very deep into like advocacy and as well as like I mean leaders being the leader try to protect other people's right and this is like part of the legacy of my family so i had a mom she's a politician i had dad who was like a community leader so i kind of like i born in that environment where i have all these i mean the tools that um will help me to strive somewhere um on my personal journey then i and myself, including four other students, we decided to create um, a student union. It's just with the, a perspective of changing the basic things inside the country. So what I mean by the basic thing in the, in the inside the country, Sudan, I mean, between 2005 to until 2011, we went through such, I mean, a heavy, uh, I mean, sort of uh, discriminations uh, even between the people who are in the center, I mean the capital city, and the people who come from the regions. So which means 
they start judging people based on their regional, I mean, based on their destinations or the place of their birth. And me and the other, like, including my other friends, and we decided to change this perspective by saying that we should change it within the school's yard. And when we were even in the schools, we decided to speak about it. We decided to tell people, even some of our friends, like in the schools, the student that, look, there's no difference between me who born in Darfur and you who are born in Khartoum, because there's no difference. At the end of the day, we are Sudanese, and we should stick into our, I mean, identity as a Sudanese, but not to our, I mean, a destination or a directions where we come from. And I, and I thought at the beginning when this, I mean, when we create this um, student union, we never thought that it's just going to be something amazing and it's going to be something that can, like, would put us in danger. As a matter of fact, we don't even have a communication facilities. No phone, no accessing anything. The way we communicate is we just write on the paper. I mean, like during the class, we write on the paper and then we pass it around to everyone, people read it, and then just get ready for the meeting. We come in the meeting, and during the meeting, we don't approach the, 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 the problem directly, but we approach the problem in a different way, which is we create an environment of English club. And what I mean by that in English club is we um, introduce as a, we choose a subject uh, within the circle, and then we ask the student to participate, and we want them to express themselves in English. So in that case, I mean, number one, they can like improve their English, and then number two, when we see the students are really engaging and fully engaging, boom, then we bring the, the subjects of that, I mean, the racial discrimination that we have within, I mean, within the school, and even within the country. And I think we were minors, I mean, like underage, protected by law. But then when I, I turned 18 and then on my way to 19, I never thought that like there would be a day that I would face all these sort of challenges in my childhood period. And then that was the initial cause and the initial cause for me to flee the country because, I mean, I had only two options. Option number one is like either to leave the country on that early age or to stay and then spend some time in a prison. So in those two options, I thought not to kind of give up and I want to continue with the project because it was like a childhood project and I feel I'm so much connected to it. Then I decided to flee the country. So, and luckily that also we have a direct link or channel that allowed me to leave the country, which is having, a, I mean, I fly from Sudan directly to Indonesia and arriving in Indonesia, the, the, the purpose of being far from Sudan to other continents is just to be far away so I can even start in Indonesia, educate myself, continue my education, at the same time be like a voice from an external voice and also, I mean, help them like spiritually, not even if like not physically, I can be there like as a spiritual. But then, Spending a few months in Indonesia, things got so worse for me. And then I had only one option in front of me. So before I had two options, but right now I have only one option. The option is like I have to, I mean, take a rickety boat and then cross the, the Indian Ocean and reach out to, to, to Australia. But 
you don't choose the directions where you are going. Which means, in that sense, like you don't say, I want to go to Australia. No. I mean, you only join a group of people and you get on the boats. And only God knows when, where you gonna end up. And then, yeah, so I was lucky that we end up on, uh, on Australia and uh, we've been intercepted by the Australian Navy and we had a very warm welcome. And a welcome that even gave us a sense of, of, uh, of hope and a welcome that gave us the sense of, of, um, of admiration to the Australian people and to their community and also upon us, we, we say to ourselves that we should do something in return to this community, the Australian community, for the offer, I mean, for them, for their, for their Navy, the Navy that saved our lives. Going back to Indonesia, when you arrived in Indonesia, you were uh, very young, um, and you spent a few months there. What was the situation that you found yourself in in Indonesia? Uh, what kind of people were uh, around you? What was the experience for someone like you who had been forced to flee from their home and had ended up in a foreign place on the other side of the world where I presume you didn't know the language, the culture, and um, uh, just the customs that existed? What were your experiences? Well, I had, I had, I mean, the first time when I arrived, I had a, um, let me say, a, a bit pleasant experience uh, in a sense of, uh, I, as you mentioned, that I don't speak the language, I don't know zero, I know zero the culture, and I know zero about everything in Indonesia. The only things that I uh, really know about the country is the, the, the capital city, Jakarta, mm. and uh, knowing only from like what I heard about it. And, and also the good things about it is like I, I speak English and it becomes like a way, a, a communicable language that between me and the people who are surrounding me. But then I was alone. The question was, I was alone. I wasn't with anybody. And first, for the first week, I decided to stay in Jakarta. Then I realized that it's, it's become super expensive because I had like a tourist visa for, um, I think, for a, uh, a month. Then the country city becomes super expensive. I'm not really able to engage. I'm not really able to communicate. I I feel myself like I don't. I'm not able to find any support, any helps, and people that can even direct me. Then I decided to go to a place where I um, mean, it's like a tiny. I mean, island. I mean, it's called like Bogor. So Bogor is not far away from the. I mean, Jakarta is about like two and a half hours away. I decided to go there. So the, the reason why I, want, I, I, I went to that place is because number one is like an island where it's a pool of tourists, and then number two also, it's easy to find the people from your own like I mean community, which means in a sense like people I mean a Sudanese people. If not, you will find the people who are like Arabic speaker people. So I was like when I went to that site and I met with the um, I mean a group of people in the internet cafe. So they are, I mean, few from them, a couple of them from Lebanon and from Syria and, and Iraqi. So we started kind of like exchanging in Arabic. So it was a very pleasant moment for me. I mean, meeting people who speak the same language as I speak and I don't need to use other foreign language. And then, so they asked me like, why you were here? And so that, that was the really the initial I mean, networking that I had with those people. And those are the people who really supported me because they even realized that I was so young and they was like, 
how old are you? I said I was 18, so they were just freaked out and we need to help him. And that's really sort of help that I had. And I can say it's, for me, it's like a poison to have people on that side. But then, then when a few, I mean, like, I had like three months in Indonesia. And then within the period of the three months, I mean, after one month of my visa expire. So I asked them, like, what can I do to get my visa renewed? Because I'm really still holding into my passport. And then I said, look, there are two options. Option number one, you need to go and extend your visa, but they will make you pay, like, I mean, hands for like a lot of money, which I don't have that like amount of money to pay. Then I decided to, um, and then the second option was to go to UNHCR and ask for a protection. So then I took the second option, went to UNHCR and I, I asked them for protections. And so I had like a very brief, I mean, uh, uh, introductions, then very brief of my, of my, the reason why I really left the country and what I asked for in return. So they said, look, I mean, we in Indonesia, I mean, just to, to remind you that we are not really signatory to 1951 convention. But with that saying, also, we will offer you asylum protections. But in the period of the time that until you get your protection, your case done, we don't offer you like any, I mean, financial support, not, I mean, housing. So it's like you on your own. So for me, I it was shocked a bit, I mean, but then I thought, okay, if I would be able to get a paper that would protect me from the police, I mean, just to protect me from being deported, I can try and manage. And that was really one of the hardest, I mean, couple of months that I ever had in my entire, I mean, life, I can say, until like being, I mean, 18 years old, I've never had this sort of experience. So you have to struggle. And that's really the moment when they, they really struggled. I started in Indonesia, like a couple of months. For me, I just spent it as like a couple of months in hell. Mm. And then you made the decision to uh, seek safety by departing Indonesia. Um, what triggered that decision and um, what were you expecting? Well, I have to be very honest with you here. I mean, number one, I wasn't expecting anything. I mean, I had not any expectations on whether to make it or to fail. That's first of all. Second of all, in terms of like what really forced me to make the decision is the situation. And when I say the situation, I only, I only, I, I don't refer to the situation in Indonesia, but I also refer to the situation, I mean, the political situation in my country. Yes. Because, I mean, I come to a point to discover that, I mean, Sudan had a very, I mean, a bilateral relationship with Indonesia, which is a very close agreement that allowed even some of the Sudanese and intelligent force that can even, I mean, monitor people in the Indonesia. And on the last, I mean, I mean, I got called up by the Sudanese ambassador, I mean, in the Sudanese embassy, I mean, and uh, I mean, to know that at the point I was so young, even I had no clue that what will happen when you walk into the, into the embassy. And not even knowing that the embassy, the Sudan embassy, it's like a, it's, it, in Indonesia, the land is, it, even though the land is in Indonesia, but the, the space that is belong to Sudan, so which is a Sudanese law, it's applied inside the embassy. I had no clue about that. So I went into the embassy with a good heart and I asked, like the ambassador asked me, okay, look, we know that there are a bunch of, I mean, there are like few people, Sudanese people who are here and we have a lot of from the Indonesian authority. 
And then we were trying to really send you guys back home. And uh, when he said that, I mean, he did not say it like in a volunteering way, but he also wanted to extend that use of force to send us back home. Mm. Then I have to manipulate the ambassador to get out of that place because the only things that I did, because I found myself like I'm in their hands right now. And there's nothing can, like, even though the, like, the, U, the UNHCR asylum protection paper that I have cannot protect me no longer. So then the only things I said to the ambassador, if you would allow me to get out of here and I would go and inform everyone and to just let them get be ready that tomorrow at the same time we will come to the embassy. So he was full enough. I mean, he was, I mean, that was like a part of my bluffing and I did and it works very well. He just asked me, okay, he even helped me, he drive me all the way to where I live, but not directly to the place, but just he dropped me in the market. I mean, the driver drove me in the market. And then I, that was really the initial, I mean, that was really one of the things that forced me to leave, I mean, Indonesia as soon as possible. And that's really the trigger of the decision. But then not knowing what am I gonna face in front of me. I mean, I wasn't even like scared of the oceans. I wasn't scared of the boat because you always know that these models bluff you. They, they don't tell you the truth. What you hear is you are going I mean, we will send you somewhere which is safer, whether you end up in New Zealand, whether you end up in Australia, but you are not going by boat, which means you're going by ship. And and you said when you arrived in Australia, um, you were given a warm welcome. What happened when you arrived, um, sorry, not arrived in Australia, you mentioned when you were saved by the Australian Naval um, ships uh what happened then um we did arrive in australia i mean i i mean we've been intercepted i mean close to christmas island and they they brought us to christmas island christmas island is like i mean it's an australian soil then we also from christmas island we end up so i mean during the, the arrivals what we have seen was uh i mean um, was a different experience. I mean, after interceptions, then we went through directly to the, I mean, to the arrival, I mean, destinations, and then we went through a screening. I mean, a screening, medical process, and everything. So we get all our details, and I mean, to the initial details to the authority, the Australian authority, Australian Immigration, which is uh, DIBP back then, Department of Immigration and Border Protection. Um, we gave them all our details. Then they did not say anything. I mean, at that extent, I mean, we were also, I mean, um, we were so excited to extend that, not because of like they saved us, but no, we were so excited that we arrived safe in a different continent. And now it's like a, a, a moment for us also to start building up our lives, even though we are still in detention, but we are dreaming. Our dreams are really taking us out of the detention to extend that, okay, what am I gonna do? I mean, what sort of plan that do I have in my life? First of all, I'm going to finish my study. Second of all, I'm going to do this. I mean, like you have a lot of plans. And so all those dreams that we had, I mean, let's say all unrealistic dreams that we had at that point, it's only we come to a point to know about that dream in a few weeks time that we spend in Christmas Island. We spent a few weeks in Christmas Island. Then we got all like in early morning by the authority, which is an Australian federal police, and uh, accompanied by the Circle, which is a private security company, and then you have an immigration authority. 
So we got called to, I mean, to a place which is an isolated center, and they gave us this sort of message, which is a very stressful and which is, I mean, unpleasant message. That they say you come to Australia after 19 of July 2013, and we have passed a law in the parliament that allowed the Australian government to send you under the memorandum of understanding that we have signed with Papua New Guinea. We will send you to Papua New Guinea or Nauru. And if you found to be a refugee, you will be resettled in Papua New Guinea or Nauru. And if not, we will send you back to your country where you come from. And that was, uh, I mean, it's like a slap on the face and pick on the gut for us. We're kind of like shocked. Hold on a minute. Are we in Australia or we are somewhere else? That's why the first question come to our head. And then the second question is, under what rights? Under what right are you going to send us to that country? Because we did not seek asylum from the Papua New Guinea. No. We came to Australia directly, even though we entered the country by boat, and there is no law that will determine the people. I mean, the way how they can seek asylum, whether you come by plane or the boat. At the end of the day, we are all, I mean, under the same convention, which is 1951 Refugee Convention. So that was really the moment of shocking for us. But then you don't have the right to criticize. You don't have the right to say anything to them because they are the lawyers. And they are the judge, and they are the ruling. So, which means you are a property of Australians. And you've described uh, in many of your interviews um, that I've listened to, and your um, speeches about your experience on Manus Island. Um, but for the sake of our podcast. Um, could you briefly tell us what happened when you arrived on Manus Island? Um, what your experiences were? Were you told how long you would remain there? Um, were you given any sign of um, at least a timeline of what was going to occur? Or were you just thrown uh, in the deep unexpectedly and not knowing what the next step would be? Um, I mean, it's, 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 I'm smiling because uh, it's, it's it's really, I mean, it's really um, a bit, uh, I mean, funny that to to hear like there are some, I mean, to laugh about it. What what makes me laugh about it is because, um, like, sense of hope or sense of something. No, I mean, it is when I say we are an Australian property, it means that um, they have a a right to, I mean, put their property where they want and for how long they want. Because we are no longer, we are no longer like we as a human being, because we are, we have been referred to a number. So when we arrived on Manus Island, I think, I mean, most of the people who arrived either on Manus Island or Nauru, we had like a bracelet in our, I mean, wrist, they written our number on it, which means I'm no longer Aziz, but I'm referred to a QNK002 or like Umar is no longer Umar, he's a BRF001. Or, I mean, Fatima is no longer Fatima, she's like FRF002. This is sort of numbers that we've been given. For me, during the journey that I remember, I mentioned several times in my podcast, during the time from Christmas Island, we landed on Darwin. From Darwin, I found myself on Mans. I, I'm, I'm really, sh- I, I was shocked. I was shocked to extend that Number one, I was shocked because of the, the place, the detention, where it's, it's located, the location of the detentions. And then number two, I was shocked as well 
that the 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 amount of the hypocrisy that the hypocrisy that the government has used so far in that extent. We haven't given any any information about what his manners look like. The only things that we've been given was a few things which I feel even I feel like disgraceful to say this. And to hear something from an authority point of view, they say that cannibalism is still exists in Papua New Guinea. That was really one of the, the, the most shocking moment for me. I mean, and then the same things that they say to us, and they return the message to Papua New Guinea that they told the Papua New Guinean or the local people, Manusian, that we are, I mean, a terrorist. Because we came from a country with the background of terrorists. We destroyed our own country. We are coming to destroy Australia. And in that case, we deserve to be locked down like an animals inside the cage. That was the message that has been, I mean, spread around in Manus Island. So arriving on Manus Island, I mean, seeing that they, they I saw the, the, the constructions. It's one of the oldest constructions they have. And some of the construction even will go back to like a second world war because it's like a naval base. We were based inside the naval base. And then you have a tent, which is like a normal tent under like on the heat of 48, 50 degrees humidity. We all came, from, I mean, most of the people who were with me on that point, I mean, at that place, we came from a countries that we don't even have a humidity. We have a like, I mean, we have a hot, hot uh, I mean, season, but it, it never goes to a point that like a 50 and 51 degrees. So then in terms of the facilities and then in terms of the services that are on the place and in terms of the, the people who are really managing the services. I mean, number one, the people who are managing the services, they are, they are racist. And I can say to a point that, I mean, 80% of them, they are racist. They are against something called refugees or they are against something called, I mean, a displaced for, I mean, displaced persons or migrants. That's number one. Number two, in terms of, if someone is really holding something deep inside him against you, who would you expect out of that person? You don't expect a good service out of that person. The only thing you expect is the worst of worst of worst of, of the service from that person. And that's exactly what we got at that point on Manus Islands. We've been, first of all, we've been locked down in the place, like, I mean, around 400 or like 400 meters square. 200, I mean, 250 people in the center. We've been put in a, in, in a hangar, which is like what it used to be a, a weapon store during the, I mean, war. 120 people, two people, without even ventilation system, without hand, without anything inside. Then that is sort of the, the, the building or like the accommodation that we, I mean, we've been forced to live inside. That's one. Two, in terms of other services, hygiene services, zero hygiene services on the place. In terms of medical services, I mean, only God knows what sort of medical services we have received. Imagine under any sort of disease that you suffer from, the cure of the disease, or like the master doctor that you're gonna meet, or the nurse, she will only tell you that, or he or she will only tell you that, go drink water and then Panadol. If you have a heart attack, water and Panadol is the cure. If you have a, I mean, an asthma, if you have an epilepsy, if you have a diabetes, it's only the cure they had on the ground 
available for us was water and Panadol. So this is sort of, I mean, sort of a, of a, of a condition that we, we went through. And we thought at the beginning, when we arrived there, we thought that it's gonna be for one month, or it's gonna be for a few weeks. Then we start counting the days. From a week, it becomes a month. From a month, it becomes a year. And the time starts flying. And we don't even have a right to raise our voice. Everything on inside the center was, I mean, a contraband items. And to extend that, I personally, I was locked down in that place for an entire six years, which means there's a big gap between my childhood age, which was, I was like, I mean, turning 18, turning 19, and then that all went it's like a cut. I went in in 2013, and I came out due to my personal effort. I came out in 2019, early 2019. So you mentioned, yes, you came out due to your own effort. And as you're describing the conditions of Manus Island and... Um, the treatment you were subject to, the way that you were given numbers, um, it just makes me think about the irony of the system that we call refugee protection. Um, in many ways, it epitomizes a system that is, um, rather than protecting us, it is often designed to protect against us, to keep us out as refugees. And while we know, theoretically, seeking asylum is recognized internationally as a right, how are we seeing, um, as you've shared through your experiences in practice, many asylum uh, seekers are treated as criminals um, and the, the discourse on refugees, um, I think is evident from the treatment of those who were supposed to be taking care of you and um, providing services. Um, we can see how the political discourse has shifted from seeing refugees as at risk um, but instead of seeing them as at risk, seeing them as a risk to those around them and to the nation. So really, paradoxically, it's a system that should have protected some of the most vulnerable people in the world and instead um, had you and your follow, fellow um, men that you were on Anis, Manus Island with feeling more vulnerable and help, uh, helpless and even further ex uh, exacerbating the pain of fleeing your homes in the first place. Um, and you mentioned through your own efforts. So I want to really get into that because I know that you were very active on Manus Island. Um, you became a prominent, you became a prominent voice among the men that were held on Manus Island. And you spoke out um, on many platforms about the treatments of um, the people held on Manus Island, how you were treated, and demand demanding your rights. Um, could you please, you know, share a little bit about how you began um, to become such a prominent voice? What were you doing um, being all the way in Manus Island? How did you manage to get your voice heard on such a um, diverse range of international news media platforms? Well, um, I, I, I agree with you, I mean, like, based on the quote that you mentioned about the system, and before even I answer that question, I just want to say a few things. I mean, I mean, if we look back a bit back, I mean, especially like for 2018, I mean, since, to, uh, sorry, I mean, since 2012, 
the Australian government has, uh, I mean, has created a monster system, which is one of the systems that designed, deliberately designed to dehumanize people and also deliberately designed to treat people even worse than criminals. I mean, not, let's just make no mistake. When we say criminals, we're referring to a person that who has committed a crime and he know based on this, I mean, he's a felony, he's gonna be sentenced for such, I mean, for certain amount of, of a time in prison. But then for us, it was completely different. But for the refugees and asylum seeker was completely different because there is no, I mean, a, a time frame for an individual like myself or many other like me who are still locked up, there's no time frame for this. So which means that you start just counting the days and the months and the year and you stay there until the moment will come and they will say, okay, you have to get out of there. And I think that will lead me to directly to the questions. I mean, how did I start this journey? Because I mean, what really also motivated me to start the journey is number one, I was an interpreter inside the detention center for at least five or six Arabic speaking countries because I speak English and that's one of the libraries that I use. Second of all, um, I also found, we found ourselves, and I always refer to this, when I say we as a refugee or asylum seeker, we found ourselves in a place where, I mean, out of sight, out of mind, which is meant in the middle of nowhere and locked up completely, cut off from the, I mean, the rest of the world. No one knows about us. If you cry, no one would tap your butt. And if you, you, you scream as loud as you can, no one could hear you on the outside. And that was really a moment when I, I really, I rocked my brain several times to come up with an ideas. What can I do to, I mean, to get our boys out of the center? Then to do that, I need to build up an allies inside the center. To do that, I need to have an agreement. Everyone on the center, we need to agree together. To, in order to do that, we need to be always like as a strong together so that with one, I mean, I mean, um, with one purpose. Our purpose is to get our voice out. I mean, I, 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 I reach out to several, uh, I mean, people on the center. Those who speak even Arabic or those who speak other languages, we managed to interpret among ourselves to come to an agreement that we start a protest. Peace, I mean, a peaceful protest that was in late 2013. I think before um, it was uh, before Christmas, and that protest was. With the purpose, our demands are very simple demands. We just want a process. We want people to come and say, hello, you are here, and we want to hear something. What brought you here? That was the purpose of our protest. No one comes to say, hey, why are you protesting? The only thing is that we have authority, police and the security guard in our face keep threatening us, keep threatening us, like you're going to go to prison. You're going to get punished for what you're doing. And that was the moment I was really pointed out even by the authority that I was like the ring leader behind all this movement inside the center. Then 2014, early 2014, like on the 17th of, um, of um, February, we had one of our black brothers has been killed. And then that was really the moment that I was, I was, He's dead because I know him. He was with me on the same center. We used to play together in volleyball. That was the moment really, I mean, strong determination hit me inside my heart. And then it says to me like, Aziz, you have to do something. Then I, I decided to do it. And I, I exchanged. I managed to collect 100 packets of cigarettes because as a prisoner, you get three packets of cigarettes. If you smoke, you don't smoke. 
from the authority every week. And I managed to accumulate those packets of cigarettes because I don't smoke. And I reach out to my friends, people who I know based on my relationship and my connection inside the center. I came up with 100 packets of cigarettes. I approached one of the security guards, local. And I mean, in a few discussions, we managed to exchange. I gave him the 100 packets of cigarettes, he gave me the phone. That was really the beginning, the initiative of me reaching out to the world. Then having a phone is one thing, but how are you gonna reach out to the people on the other side? This is another thing. So what I did was I took the phone, I just went inside the internet. What I wrote was something very silly. I mean, any organization, any struggling organization that helps refugee. That's how even what I type inside the key, I mean, in the internet. And then what I see, like a list of organizations just came loading one after another. And then I said, look, I'm not gonna go through all of them. I'm just gonna choose one of them because I don't have a right. And what, while I was doing that, I was inside the toilets. That's the only safest place for me to to, to use my tel- my phone. So, I mean, I went in and I got in touch with someone called Ian Wrinkle from a refugee action coalition, main office in Sydney. He was the first person I got in touch with. And I reached out to him, I sent him an email very short emails. My name is Abdulaziz Mohammed. I'm one of the detainees on Manus Island. And I said, he was shocked. Five minutes later, he replied to me and he was like, no, how do I even, I mean, how do I prove that that was you? What if this is like one of the people, I mean, like the authority who wants to test me. And he was, I said to him, look, very easy. I took a picture of my ID card and I sent it to him. And he went mind blown. He was like, what if I am really part of the government? I said, look, I have nothing to lose. And this is really one of the strong things that I said to him, I have nothing to lose. If you really want to help me, be my guest. If you really don't want to help me or you are part of the government scrutiny, there's nothing, I, I mean, I, there's nothing I can lose at the moment. At the end of the day, they know me who I am and what I'm doing right now. So, and he said, look, I mean, I'm gonna be on your side and I'm gonna help you. That was the initial, I mean, that was the beginning of me spreading around the, 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 the media and he was also he introduced me to the media one after another one after another and then that was a really really the moment I mean he offered me like a platform through his connections and then I utilized that platform in a several way several occasions by telling the stories my personal stories as well as the stories of the people with me on the center and also making not forgetting the condition because and the, the, the purpose of me telling my story is I want to change the narrative. I want to change that narrative in the inside Australia or around the globe, which say refugees are criminals. No, I want to prove to them that no, refugees are just people like yourself and myself. The only difference that you have a, I mean, you have the privilege to be born in a country where democracy exists. And I haven't, I mean, I haven't had that privilege. I was born in a country where Democracy is not exist, and when you, when I start fighting to, to make that democracy within the country, I get persecuted for that, and that's the only difference. And also, I have the same dream. I have dreams. I have hopes, and I'm just human like you. Why do you want to taking? Why do you take that narrative when the government say they are criminals more than the narrative that I'm telling you personally, my personal story? And that was really my, I mean, entering point. And through that entering point, I managed to reach out the heart of, I mean, not only thousands, but billions of Australians 
within Australia and also around the globe. And it was through this work that you've done um, sharing your experiences and um, really telling the rest of the world what you were experiencing and what the people there with you on Manus Island um, that were detained were experiencing that led to a lot of your um, nomination for some very prestigious awards. Um, and one of the most prestigious is the one that I um, described in my introduction for today's podcast, um, the Martin Ennels Award for Human Rights Defenders. Um, you were the 2019 laureate, and I understand that um, as part of the nomination process, you were invited to the award ceremony in uh, Switzerland. And I think um, that opened up some doors in terms of making a decision for yourself, whether to return or not return. And I've read from a lot of your interviews that um, it was a very difficult time for you with people all around you telling you do not go back um, and you feeling an obligation to go back and um, help the rest of those detained but then ultimately deciding that uh, the platform in Europe would be used to the best of your advantage to help those detained in Manus Island. Um, how, how did that come about, that journey for you? What happened when you arrived in Switzerland? Um, and what did those awards mean for you? Well, um, to be honest, like, I mean, at the beginning when I was at Manus, I mean, I, um, um, I did not know really the real value, the value of the awards at all. Because why? I mean, the reason why I don't know the value of the award is because I am, I mean, like, I'm in a detention center. I don't have the time to read, I mean, to read what, I mean, I don't have the time to read the words. The only the time that I have, I, I use the time to help other people. I mean, I, I mean, I, like, I became, as an interpreter in the center, I became, like, a, a, I mean, a social worker, and I also become, like, as a, a mental health nurse, and I was doing, like, bit of everything in the center, helping people just to stop them from, you know, I mean, suiciding and also try to help them like psychologically to just stay strong. Because, and the reason why I do that, because I took it as like a, a, a walk, a destruction things that will help me also mentally stay as stronger as I can, I mean, as possible. And that's the, the sort of thing that I did. And then it comes a time that when in 2016, I've been approached by a journalist. Um, his name is Michael Green, uh, he's from, um, I mean, Australia, Melbourne. He approached me and he asked me to do a podcast. I mean, it's a podcast called like a messenger podcast. We did that podcast through our journey. We won like handful of awards. And then that was also a, a, one of the things that really triggered my mind that, I mean, I, when, I mean, when I got nominated for this award in 2018 for the Martin Arnold Award, I, I said to them, look, I mean, it's just an award. There's nothing, it's not going to do anything for me because I know myself, I mean, how deep in trouble I am with the authority, with the Australian government. And I know when, I don't know when I'm going to leave, but I know that one day I'm going to leave the detention center. And this is what I say even to the authority on, I mean, like the Australian authority on Manus. I say to them, look, I mean, I'm really like in terms of patient, I'm impatient. All right. I'm going to stay here with you guys until to the last minute. We can pack the chairs, the tables, and then we will see. What next? 
That's the point. That's the point. Then, in the middle of dealing with a, a suicide, I mean, a person who was really trying to take his own life, I've been reached out by the director of Martin Arnold Foundation from Switzerland. And he was just trying to give me the news, and he want to see my reaction. That I mean, I he want to see my reaction of like, ah, oh, I want that work. No, no, no. I mean, when he called me, and I just hang up on him, and I said, look, I mean, I'm dealing with someone who's really taking his own life. I don't have the time to speak with you, but I mean, call me later. He called me a second time. When he called me and he asked me, like, what did you do? I said, I'm sorry, but I have someone life who's really on the stake. I have to save his life better than the call. And he's like, the call is about to save you. And I said, look, if it comes to save me, I better save someone life before even than saving myself. And that's what it, I mean, that's what it determined. Being leader, it's not about yourself. Being leader, it's about being a show to, have to protect other people, take the bullets of other people in front of I mean, take the bullets of everyone who is really behind you. You have to protect people. You have to make sure that people sleep well, eat well, physically and mentally, and they are safe. So then 2019, again, they reach out to me and they say, look, we start doing the paperwork and we are trying to reach out to the Australian authority and see how to get you out of the patient center. First, I say to them, look, I mean, you don't know. I mean, I say maybe you guys, you don't know how, I mean, what kind of, I mean, what kind of a system that Australia has, or maybe you know the system, but you are trying to manipulate the system. I said to them, look, if there is a way that you can get me out of the detention center, yes, I can get out with only to go out there, tell the truth and come back to finish what I started. Because this is a journey that I have started and I have to wait to the end of this journey. Then February, I mean, 9th of February, 2019, I got a permission, which is, right away in my rooms one of the i mean the security got buried and then he said look tomorrow morning you have to pack yourself and get ready let's go you are going to geneva and it was like shocking moment for me geneva where is geneva why geneva like from manos to geneva that's a long way like i have to go through two continents which is pacific then asia and then i'm gonna go to europe and he was like yeah i'm by myself i'm alone he was like yeah and i did not believe him I mean, I got on the plane, and two days later, I found myself in Geneva, and that was the only moment that I confirmed the 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 the, the power of these awards as an international awards. Then, during the ceremony, I made it out clear that I want to go back to Menace Island. The reason why I said that because it not mean that I, I don't want to be a Swiss. No, I have this is a sense of a, I mean a responsibility behind me. That's one. Two, I have also something else, not on top of the responsibility, being in front as a face of everyone on the center, it's most important to be inside the center so that you can carry out the fight. But then I've got a lot of message, as you, you say, that not to go, I mean, a lot of pressure from the human rights organization here in Australia, everywhere they're asking me to stay in, in, uh, in Europe. But... Then when I decided to stay in Europe, it was super hard for me because I still feel that sense of guilt, which is I carried around with me until last couple of months ago, because it's a sense of guilt. Then I promised myself if I will stay in Europe, I have to continue to do the work. I have to first share this story. Second of all, I mean, do whatever it takes to close Manus Island and do whatever it takes to get everyone who was on Manus and Nauru to a safe destination. And as I, as I speak today, we, with the help of the civil society, whether in Europe, in Australia, or around the globe, we 
I mean, first of all, we managed to force the Australian government to close Manus Island once for all. Then second of all, we managed also to, to push the process with the, I mean, with the U.S. So we have about, I mean, 400 plus people in the U.S. We have a handful of people in Canada and then New Zealand. Countries start even reaching out, taking one at a time. But let's not forget that the efforts, because I have never spent one day in Switzerland with, I mean, it, like, it's now been two years in Switzerland. I have never spent one day in this country without speaking about manners or without sharing the story or without reaching a civil society, an organization just to ask for, I mean, the help, which is in a sense of putting more pressure toward the Australian government in order to find a solution for those people. And through the work that you've done and other um, detainees from Manus Island who have also been very prominent activists and um, shared the experiences of Manus Island and demanded the closure, you've all jointly um, managed to uh, reach that result and ensure that Manus Island is closed once and for all. Um, but we know that situations like this are not... Um, you know, unique, that there are many places around the world that are still detaining asylum seekers and refugees, despite the fact that asylum is a right, seeking asylum is a right. Um, and so what do you think needs to happen for these places to close down all around the world? How can the efforts that you have um, made towards getting Manus Island shut down and the advocacy work that you've done, how can that be replicated? How can that be shared around the world to ensure that uh, detention centers all around the world that are treating asylum seekers and refugees as criminals um, also close down? What are your suggestions? I think I will, I, will, I will propose a couple of suggestions here. I mean, first of all, like my, I mean, the first suggestion is, I mean, we, I mean, this is like a direct, I mean, I refer to the refugees. I mean, we the refugees, we have this sense of, of being, I mean, ashamed. We are scared of being judged by the community, by the hosting community, when we start talking about our experience. That's the problem. That's really one of the major things that we are, I mean, suffering from. We need to open up. We need to speak about, I mean, about the situation that we've been through. Whether it, even if it's the painful, we need to let it out. We cannot just keep that kind of trauma in a tiny little box and throw it somewhere else. No, people need to know what we went through in order to get to that point. And then also we have to use our own story because there is a platform, but we need to use our own story. Tell your story. I mean, telling your story is one of the weapons. The story is one of the weapons that can open up as many doors as they can. And I know today there are millions of refugees around the globe who are the displaced people as well as people who are still in detention. They have such a painful story. They have a story that which can open millions of doors, but they scare from the judgment of the community. They scare from the judgments of the other people. They scare from the judgment of the people surrounding them. So. From here, I want to call you, all of you guys, whether you are in the detention or you are out of the detention, you have a responsibility upon you. What that responsibility is? The responsibility is you have a voice. You shouldn't just, I mean, be silent. You have to speak up. And when I say speak up, try to seize any opportunity that you find in front of you. Even if you're going to speak to one person, tell your story and the person will send that message about and then from one person would be a 10 person. And you have to be positive. 
you have a million right to be angry about what you went through. But again, with anger, we cannot solve the problems. But if I'm a positive, people will give me time. People will listen to me. And then people will allow me even to speak up. That's the first proposal. The second thing, second suggestion is, I mean, we also want to reach out to the civil society. And then reaching out to the civil society, we want the civil society to offer a space for refugees. Recognize them. What people are looking, refugees are looking for is like a recognition. I mean, whether, I mean, we do not need to underestimate the refugees that they are not really well educated. No way. We don't need, we don't, we don't need to use that. I mean, we need to use, I mean, bring them, put them in a table, in a round table with us. They can be part of the decision maker. They can be part of everything. Why I said, if the refugees today are part of the decision makers, if I say something today from a refugee perspective, someone who went through a lot of things, if I say something, my voice could be here. I mean, my voice would be easily heard by millions of other refugees. And it can be very easy in a very simple language that can be interpreted rather than someone who comes from the institutional point of view and say something. This, this is the difference between that. So we need also the civil society to reconsider the idea of join the force. When I said join the force, when you start joining the force, you have to make sure that you have the refugees or asylum seekers or those who are concerned have to be part of this battle because this is a, one of the hardest battles. And if we keep excluding people, we always, I mean, we get, I mean, underestimated or like not, I mean, fully um, recognized our work by the government because the government will say, no, what you're doing is like from a study, I mean, a statistical point of view, from a standard developed point of view, but why are they not, I mean, there are no refugees around. So here we need to do, what we need to do is we need to bring in refugees and put them in that round tables and use it as a weapon as well to push the governments on the corner because the government cannot today in in simple conversation, I can, I mean, I can be able to, to convince even the Minister of Immigration that what you're saying is not right because I lived in that place for six years and I know how hard it is to spend one day in the detention center because you don't know it. You know it only from the office because you spend one day in the office and I spend one day in the detention center. And I think my experience is more in that sense. So these are the two, I mean, um, proposal that I offer for us. And it's a very simple. It's not really a big thing. It's very simple. Absolutely, I agree with you. Finding the best solutions and responses for the uh, complex uh, issues facing the millions of displaced people around the globe requires um, input from those with lived experiences of displacement for the development of policies that are closer to the reality on the ground. Those with lived experiences, as you mentioned, they're the experts on the experiences. They're the ones that have experienced uh, time in detention or the impacts of laws and policies about refugees. Um, and they can draw on directly on their personal experiences of displacement. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, we're seeing now it's 2021. Um, it marks 70 years since the um, refugee convention, and yet we're seeing an unprecedented number of uh, refugees um, and displaced people around the globe. The numbers are increasing rather than de uh, decreasing. So we need 
of course, civil society. We need refugees and asylum seekers, people with forced displacement experiences to be at the decision-making table. But ultimately, a lot of these decisions um, lie with governments and states. And so what do you think needs to happen? I know this is a very big question, but what do you want to see governments doing um, now and uh, into the future to ensure that um, displaced people are protected? Well, I think, as you said, I mean, um, since the convention, it marked 70 years. But today, um, if we look at the number, I mean, the number of the, uh, I mean, the displaced people around the globe, it's reached out to, I mean, 80 million plus. And if we compare this number with the, the Second World War II, I mean, we see that the number has doubled, or maybe it's getting even more than that. Then, but the question that we all need to ask ourselves, I mean, and this is when I, I mean, I refer to the government, like, what is the problems? Is the convention, it's not really, I mean, very well respected, or there are people who are manipulating the convention? Because I know today, if we look at it from the, I mean, a perspective of the convention, I can tell you that there are, I mean, many countries around the globe today who are really not really respecting, I mean, 100% the convention. Why? Because if you look at it, like, the convention did not mention anything. There's no any protocol that mentioned that a government has a right, any government has a right to send people away. I mean, to lock them up or like indefinitely. The convention hasn't mentioned that because the convention has mentioned something broadly that people have a right to seek for asylum, whether they come by plane, whether they walk and cross the border, whether they come by boats. So what we really need to reconsider that is we need to ask ourselves. First of all, I mean, the government are not really doing their work as they're supposed to do. And then they are turning their self, they're, they're turning their back on the refugees. And I can give you another concrete example like what we are seeing happening in the Mediterranean right now as we speak. There's maybe a boat who's really coming through. I mean, we have seen that the European Union deliberately, they start even funding a militia groups in Libya, whereby, I mean, making the life of the migrants and refugees in Libya as hell. At the same time, we have seen, I mean, the, I mean, on the Pacific side, we have seen that the Australian government managed to reach out to make an agreement, which is a, a I mean, an MAU, Memorandum of Understanding, with, with the countries like Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, I mean, Nauru. So, I mean, Anto, how can we even, I mean, protect the convention that we are part of it if we are reaching out to a solution which are not even part of the boats? Because these are the solutions which are not even included. They are not solutions. We are just creating an extra problems. Because you have the problems in front of you, instead of really solving the problems that are ahead of you, you're trying to kind of distract the, the, the problems by causing another problem which is like, I mean, on the side. Because now for people, instead of talking about the Australian responsibility or like European responsibility toward the convention, no, people are talking about the official. Why? Because you created distractions and turning people, I mean, I mean, face away. That's the first thing. Second thing, I think from the UN perspective as well, we want like the Commission of Refugees, which is a, the UN is here also, they are playing a major role. They are playing, playing a major role. Because this is one of the UN, I mean, it's an organization that exists from the, I mean, the Second World War. So it's like their mandate is to deal with the refugees. 
we want them also to increase the pressure toward, I mean, the states, that the state has to, they have to respect it. They have to respect what they have signed, what they have signed, which is the conventions. And if the state, if each country today will respect what they have signed for, I think we would have a less number than even the Second World War II. But speaking of that, that's not happening. And it's not even on the table right now. Then the questions that we ask ourselves is how can we find the solution right now? What can we find? Not a 100% solution, but at least something that can reduce, help us to reduce the number. I mean, I think there are few things that we would propose right now. First of all, I think we need to, 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 to create we need to create an environment within the destination of each individual. We need to create a, I mean, an environment within the destination of each individual. For instance, like, let's say in Sudan, what we need to do is we need to make sure that the government in Sudan would be held accountable based on what they are doing because the violation of human rights and the, the persecutions and all of this. And if you are, if the international community would be able to reach out and hold, I mean, and, and hold each country accountable of what they are doing internally, that will change the situation. Because what's really made people to run away is, imagine, if you say home, but when the home becomes the mouth of shark, what you do? You just run away from, from the bite. Because you avoid being bite. But if we have a shark outside that will force the shark, which is the internal shark, that from biting you, I think we will be able to reduce the problems today. And that's really some of the things that even the international community need to really to step up right now. And when I say step up, it's not in the sense of using a bureaucracy or a politics things, but no, you have to make it sure that each country will be held accountable based on the crimes that they have, I mean, based on the violations of the human rights that they are committing within the country. And holding accountable has to be even, a, I mean, a, a political sanctions, not the entire country has to be sanctioned, but individually, has to be individual level has to be sanctioned, and this is the, the, one of the methods that will I mean help and avoid the the, the the prostitution internally, and also will I mean will help to reduce the number who are internally displaced people. And then the second one is also we need to stop the intervention. I mean countries have to put their interests away. I mean when I say that I mean countries have to put their interests away because because of certain countries' interests within other states. I mean, within other state territory, we are seeing that there are some violations. Because if one country has a business with one another country, with another country, then that country will always stand on your side, even though you are doing something wrong. I think the, the states have to put their interests. I mean, the interests they have to put their interests away, and they have to focus on how to help the the, the situations, not to 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 to. I mean, to exacerbate the situation. Thank you. You raise some really good points there, Aziz. Um, and it's been a pleasure talking to you about your experiences. Thanks for listening to Unfiltered. We hope you will join us again for our next episode, where we will bring you more interviews from around the world to share interesting perspectives and discussions on forced displacement.